Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. At first, candidate Trump was the subject of international fascination. Thank you. But it didn't take long for the maverick contender to start ruffling feathers. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. I'd say across the world, there was a lot of shock and apprehension. Uh, about what having a President Donald Trump was going to mean. This American election opens a period of uncertainty, he says. I'd like to approach it with lucidity and clarity. According to China's state media, Chinese President Xi Jinping sent a congratulatory message to Trump. Vladimir Putin hailing the results and looking forward to a cozier relationship with a Trump presidency. I want to congratulate the American nation, Putin said, and Mr. Donald Trump with this victory. The Obama administration had been very um, kind of traditional liberal uh, internationalist type. You know, Obama believed in multilateral alliances, working with allies, that sort of thing. But Trump had made it clear that he didn't necessarily like our allies. Sitting here, I could just let all of these countries continue onward with these massive deficits. I mean, honestly, I don't want to use the word, but they are taking advantage of us. Okay. Uh, he wanted to use uh, tariffs, and he thought that the European Union was uh, trying to screw the U.S. over on trade. These types of things that you just weren't used to hearing from an American president. To be honest with you, Europe has been very, very tough to deal with. They've taken advantage of our country, the European Union, for many, many years. And I told them we can't do it anymore. They got what Trump kind of was promising. I mean, he went and, you know, waged a trade war on China. He has been dismissive and disdainful of our allies. He, you know, put a lot of pressure on NATO. I have been very, very direct with Secretary Stoltenberg and members of the alliance in saying that NATO members must finally contribute their fair share and meet their financial obligations. At this stage, I think there's a lot of exhaustion. But there's also this kind of nagging concern that uh, Trumpism is here to stay for a while. I'm Carlos Prieto. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, foreign affairs correspondent Nahal Tusi on Trump's impact on foreign policy and what Joe Biden will inherit. This is the first episode of a two-part series. Part one, China, Russia, and an unlikely romance. I think number one that we should talk about is China. Where was the relationship with China by by the end of the Obama administration? Uh, It was getting cooler and worse and more suspicious on both sides. I think uh, in the beginning, you know, Obama tried to like really get to know the Chinese and and work with them. And it, it was kind of the same idea that a lot of people had had for a long time that China, as its economy grew, it was going to become more democratic and more integrated into the world and that sort of thing. But over time, and especially after Xi Jinping became president of China, it just started taking a more autocratic turn. Analysts say that during his first term, Xi has become the most powerful leader since Mao. And it became clear that the Chinese, even though their economic system was dynamic and and capitalistic in a lot of ways, their political system was increasingly autocratic, increasingly oppressive. According to Reuters, the documents accuse the Chinese government of covering up disappearances, censoring opposition, and fostering a biased judicial system, among a slew of other violations. And then Trump 
he viewed China largely through the lens of trade, and he was convinced that the Chinese government had been misleading the United States, cheating the United States on trade. Since China joined the World Trade Organization two decades ago, we have racked up nearly $5 trillion, the Vice Premier, I hope he's not listening to this, in trade deficits. There are parts of that that probably might be true, depending on what you're looking at, but things have not really improved much um, under Trump with China either. After more than two years of escalating threats, tariffs, and trade wars, the U.S. and China signed a new trade deal today. As Nick Schifrin tells us, it is known as phase one of a potentially larger deal. But the administration, critics, and businesses all say it is crucial to make sure that it's enforced and that the reality matches the rhetoric. Are, are there any short or medium term effects of, of this trade war in these past four rocky years with, uh, with, with China? Uh, well, I mean, I think a lot of uh, people in the agricultural sector in the United States, uh, you know, they've come to have to rely on government uh, funding, bailouts, that sort of thing to help them because the, the trade war has made it impossible for them to do business with China. And then, of course, you add the pandemic, which makes it even tougher. So it's been a real stressor on the economy. So when the Biden administration takes over, they're going to have a lot of work to do to rebuild that economy, to figure out how to untangle themselves from this trade war. At the same time, Biden has suggested that he might not immediately lift all of the tariffs, that he might try to use some of what Trump has done as leverage uh, over the Chinese government, because uh, I don't think Biden really has any illusions about Xi Jinping and, and kind of the autocratic approach uh, that the Chinese government is increasingly taking politically. So moving a little bit north on the map, I think Russia's next. That's one of the most interesting relationships, I think we can we can describe it as such in the in the last four years. And I get the sense that there were two tracks going on at the same time. There was the official approach uh, where the CIA and Congress were, were pushing to take an aggressive position. The Senate Intelligence Committee said yesterday it agrees with the U.S. intelligence community's assessment that Russia's government acted in part to help Donald Trump win the GOP nomination. And then there was a president who has said a lot of things, both live and on Twitter, but never really something to unnerve Russia. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you basically got it right. Basically, via Congress and some of the uh, administration aides, the U.S. has actually put a lot of sanctions on Russia, uh, taken a lot of other steps. But President Trump himself goes to great lengths to avoid criticizing Vladimir Putin. It's very strange because he'll say... My administration's been tough on Russia. And there's been no president ever as tough as I have been on Russia. But then he will not take other steps that uh, make it clear that the United States does not support the direction that Russia has taken on, on a number of things, including election interference. But I got to say, this is still an enduring mystery as to why Donald Trump is so careful about saying anything about Vladimir Putin. All 17 of the United States intelligence agencies have concluded that the Russians did interfere with our election, and these are nonpartisan career professionals. Would you now, with the whole world watching, tell President Putin, would you denounce what happened in 2016, and would you warn him to never do it again? All I can do is ask the question. My people came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. 
I will say this, I don't see any reason why it would be. Basically, the determination that Russia had interfered was uh, like a combined determination of 17 uh, intelligence agencies. And Trump said, I don't have any reason to think that they did. And it was really an astonishing statement. Even some of Trump's staunchest Republican allies were shocked. Later on, Trump insisted that he had misspoken. Uh, but nobody, I, I don't think a lot of people necessarily believe him. They, it seemed like he was very much um, being unusually nice to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, and, and on that point, I guess it's it's pertinent to point out that, you know, back in 2014, during the Crimean crisis, uh, Obama kind of spearheaded the, the effort for sanctions on, uh, on Russia. Do we expect Biden to have a similar position to what President uh, Obama did in, in his second term? Well, Biden was a staunch advocate for Ukraine uh, during the crisis between Russia and Ukraine, and he was basically... Uh, Obama's main envoy to that conflict. Biden has said that he he once met Vladimir Putin and that he told him, I said, Mr. President, I'm looking in your eyes and you have no soul. And he claims that Putin responded to him, well, then I suppose we understand each other. But Biden also is aware that Russia is still a major world power. It is a member of the UN Security Council with veto power. Uh, a lot of things can't get done without Russia's cooperation. And when you're talking about issues like uh, climate change and the pandemic, you need countries like Russia to work with you. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing and able, but hopefully this will not be necessary. I really don't think we can talk about Trump's record without mentioning North Korea. Uh, maybe you can tell me how, how his relationship, particularly with Kim Jong-un, um, started off. Uh, it started off poorly. Uh, the two traded a lot of insults. Rocket Man should have been handled a long time ago. Little Rocket Man. Trump told Kim... Uh, you know, said in a public statement that if North Korea tried anything, that he would rain fire and fury down on them. Kim responded by calling Trump a dotard. And then they decided to meet. We're very proud of what took place today. Uh, I think our whole relationship with North Korea and the Korean Peninsula is uh, it's going to be a very much different uh, situation than it has in the past. This was unprecedented. It was historical. A U.S. president has never met a North Korean dictator until the two of them met in Singapore. A meeting with North Korea dictator Kim Jong-un at the demilitarized zone that separates North and South Korea. I've never expected to meet you at this place. And they exchanged letters. Trump praised him. Uh, he, it was over time, it just became very, very, um, it was very clear that Trump valued the personal relationship with Kim. And then we fell in love, okay? No, really, he wrote me beautiful letters. And they're great letters. Kim says to Trump, our meetings, our relationship is out of a fantasy film. And probably put a little too much emphasis on it, thinking that that personal relationship would get Kim to stop his nuclear program. But Kim really just wanted the U.S. to lift its sanctions, and he has no real intention of giving up. And yet, even since then, Trump has, you know, said the two fell in love, that they exchanged letters, that they have a good relationship. Even now, I cannot forget that moment of history when I firmly 
held your excellency's hand as the whole world watched. So the power of love is not enough to take down the power of nukes, I guess. <laughs> How long have you been waiting to make that joke? Have you been like practicing that all day? I, I was rehearsing it while you were answering. <laughs> um, seriously, uh, was there a deeper significance to, to the summits? And they were uh, historic summits, right? And that is something to be said, but I'm wondering if, if there's anything that we can say to Trump's credit, we, we got out of them. Well, in a sense, it broke a taboo on meeting with Kim directly. Uh, and so now, if Joe Biden wants to meet with Kim Jong-un, he would get a lot of criticism, but it wouldn't be of the type would he be the first to meet. And I will say, given how frozen that conflict is between the U.S. and North Korea, trying something that was just different and out there, uh, even a lot of people who are not Trump fans were okay with the fact that he met with Kim. There's some folks who are thinking, well, maybe Joe Biden's going to be fine for the next four years and we can live with it. But what if another Trump-style Republican or even Trump himself wins power again in 2024? Are we going to see another major pendulum swing when it comes to U.S. foreign policy? Nahal Tusi is a foreign affairs reporter at Politico. And keep an eye out for Dispatch next Tuesday, when Nahal and I will be back to talk about the Middle East, Afghanistan, and the impact of Trump's politics on America's historic alliances. The Politico Dispatch production team includes Jeremy Siegel, Jenny Ament, and Sudeep Reddy. Our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. And just a heads up, Dispatch is going to be away for the next couple of days over the Thanksgiving holiday. But Jeremy will be back in your feed on Monday. I'm Carlos Prieto. Thanks for listening. <laughs>